everyone, this is Shreya. So back in episode 28, I told you guys about a women in medicine conference called Girl Med Media that I had the pleasure to speak at and interviewed the other women speakers. I asked them first, what would you tell your younger self, which was all episode 28, so go check that out. And secondly, I asked them about their stories. And so over the past few months, I've worked with Gabby Mayer and MS4 at NYU, understanding and analyzing the experiences that stuck out most in their mind about being a woman in medicine. Gabby does a lot of the behind the scenes work in Core IM on the Instagram page and the 12 Thursday graphics. So I am very excited to sponsor her and give her the center stage. And with that, I will leave you in her very capable hands. Thank you, Shreya. I am absolutely thrilled to be here to talk about what's one of my favorite topics, which is the intersection of gender and medicine. But before I dive in, I do want to take a moment to give a quick preface. We're going to be discussing the experience of womanhood in medicine, predominantly from the perspective of our interviewees, all of whom are practicing physicians and all of whom self-identify as women. I want to acknowledge that this is a narrow sample group and is not representative of all women. The experience of being a woman is broad and complex. It encompasses folks who don't identify on a gender binary, those who feel that these designations of woman or man can't fully capture who they are as people. So while today's interviews may not be comprehensive, I do hope that this podcast is going to serve as a starting point for a much larger conversation about how gender relates to our work as clinicians. Okay, on to the main event. As Shreya mentioned, we'll be stepping away from clinical medicine for today. But since old habits do die hard, we'll still be using a case-based approach to guide us, taking a deep dive into one woman's journey through medical training and attendingship to identify larger themes about womanhood. Who is she? Well, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Kali Hussein. I'm a trauma surgeon. I also do acute care surgery and critical care. Kali's job title is, I think, impressive enough on its own. But then we learn a little more about her and her accomplishments take on a whole new dimension. I'm originally from Somalia. I was born there. I came to the United States at the age of nine and having to learn a new language, you know, navigating through a new culture, being a Muslim woman who's hijab wearing. And the fact that I had a goal of becoming a surgeon was something that was completely contradictory in everybody's eyes all these negative things just, you know, played with my self-confidence. What Kali's describing here, this feeling that her identity of Muslim woman makes her, in the eyes of others, an unlikely candidate for surgeon, has a name. It's called stereotype threat. Stereotype threat is sort of a buzzword these days, one with lots of different definitions depending on which source you consult. But here's how I like to define it. When someone is at risk of conforming to negative stereotypes about one or more of their identity groups. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. Stereotype threat isn't just a buzzword. It's a very powerful force. Ample studies have demonstrated that when people feel stereotype threat, which is that fear or anxiety that they will fulfill a perceived negative expectation, they do worse on measures of intellectual performance, such as standardized tests or even working memory. Stereotype threat also extends beyond the classroom. The literature suggests that it keeps women out of leadership positions and actually contributes to workplace burnout. In residency, Kali comes up against stereotype threat again. This time it bubbles up around a very specific identity, that of motherhood. 
once I got myself into a residency program where I was doing well, I started having kids and that became the next thing to say, you can't do it, right? I've proven to myself, you know, it wasn't proof enough for everybody else that I've made it into a surgery residency I was told I couldn't get into. But now while I was in it, I was being told that, no, you can't do it as a mother. No matter, you know, how well I performed, it was always, you know, oh, but it's not going to matter because you're a mother. It's not going to mean anything. You're going to finish and you're going to be a stay-at-home mom and you're not going to help any patients. You know, it, it didn't matter. To me, what's most striking about this is how Kali actually responds to the adversity that she's come up against. She buckles down and, well, for lack of a better phrase, she sets out to prove her haters wrong. I had PDFs of my phone, uh, of my books on my phone, and I would be breastfeeding and reading at the same time. And when I came back, you know, the expectation was that I would be behind everybody else. And I came knowing everything that was in the book. I think in the end, it served me very well. All these negative things and all these, you know, the fact that people had no confidence in, in my ability to overcome these obstacles gave me strength to say, I, I can do it. But the fact that all these negative things, I can turn them into a fuel for me to keep going. It made me read more. It made me, you know, work harder to prove others wrong. Kali frames the naysaying she experiences as fodder. She has this natural ability to repurpose negative energy, to allow it to galvanize her ambition. Now, Kali is the exemplary way to respond to adversity. When I was listening to her story, I couldn't help but think of all the times that I didn't act this way. All the times that when I was faced with a challenge, I felt tears come to my eyes or I even backed down entirely. My point is that what we see Kali accomplish here is much more easily said than done. Sometimes our responses to difficult situations are much less constructive than hers. Sometimes, for instance, we get angry. You're fearing that your colleagues are going to look down at you. You're fearing that you could lose your job. And all of those fears get bottled up. And when you have conflict, boom, now you get angry. That's Dr. Eileen Brenner. She's an emergency medicine physician practicing in upstate New York. She goes on to explain how this anger can work against women who experience it. Anger is a failure for women. When you don't keep it inside, people perceive you as a failure. Eileen is suggesting that not all anger is created equal that the emotion of anger has additional negative valence when a woman is the one exhibiting it. This is a phenomenon that is not at all unique to the field of healthcare. One of my favorite authors, Lauren Groff, touches upon the stigmatization of female anger quite frequently in her writing. Here she is discussing it in a recent interview. She says, We're told to be nice, sweet, not to be angry, because the anger of a woman is an incredibly frightening thing. It's not something that we as a society value at all. And there's nothing more devastating to a woman than to be called a harridan, a hag, whatever a witch is, someone with power who fights the status quo. She later says, women are not allowed open access to our fury. If you scream at someone, you get called names. There's so much shaming for female rage. And we are human beings, like men are. But men can yell at other people. Men can get into fights. So what Graf is describing, an inability to access our fury, can lead to a social metaplasia of sorts, one where women choose to hold things in or elect to avoid expressions of conflict so that we remain sufficiently likable or palatable. 
Now, it's not always a conscious choice. We may not always be aware we're holding back in this way. Frequently, likability is just the path of least resistance, the price we pay to ensure that we don't get written off as bossy or difficult. You know, women can be seen as aggressive if they push themselves forward or uppity. Dr. Kate Pryor, an anesthesiologist, and I'm sure as her accent gives away, she practices in the UK. Kate goes on to explain how this perception of women impacts our behavior in professional settings. If you look at sort of the old school language of leadership, the very masculine sort of descriptors, assertiveness, dominance, aggression. But if a woman demonstrates some of the masculine traits, it's seen as a bad thing. You know, women get described as bossy. A man will, well, I say never, but probably hardly ever be described as bossy in the workplace. I find that inequality just so disappointing when we live in a world where men can do everything that a woman can do and a woman can do everything that a man can do. I really echo Kate's disappointment here. Her anecdote provides a sobering example of how these conversations about gender, which can often be couched in lofty and theoretical language, the language of stereotype threat or accessing our fury, how these conversations infiltrate down into our day-to-day and they can actually play material roles in our ability to advance ourselves as professionals and leaders. I think we'd all love to easily take a page from Kali's book, to be able to develop that skill of buckling down in the face of adversity. But that level of grit is not necessarily something all of us can summon all of the time. And that's okay. Women aren't perfect, and the standards to which our behavior is held shouldn't be perfect either. Someday, I hope to live and work in a world where there is room for female leaders to be a little more human, a little angrier, or, yes, even a little bossier. Kali eventually graduates from residency, juggling motherhood the entire time, and she starts a new job as an attending. And in that job, she finds plenty to keep her busy. I came to a small community hospital that was um, level two trauma center for a short period of time. And I came from a level one trauma center that was very academic. And the kind of things that I saw, you know, to me were concerning. And so I started voicing, you know, my opinions and saying, you know, this is not right. This is inappropriate. This is not standard. And we should do something about it. I ended up talking to one of my mentors. So one of the best advices um, um, that he gave me was, you know, take on a leadership role. You know, yes, you're young. Yes, you just got there, but you can make the change yourself. I ended up writing the job description of what we needed an ICU director. And I said, this is the job description of what an ICU director does. These are the things that I'm working on right now. And I ended up creating the position and getting hired on to do that job. So when I went to go to talk about this, I said, you need someone hired to do this. I'm here already working on the steps to get there. So and I'm, uh, you know, capable and the only person here ready and willing to do it. Here's the position. Here are the requirements. And I'm here to do the job to be paid to do it. I did not volunteer. I want to highlight one key component of Kali's story here. She sits across from her supervisor and she makes an explicit ask. Among those women that we interviewed, this very act, the act of going for it, of making the ask for what you want or deserve from your career, was at the crux of almost every single success story. Here, for example, is Dr. Jess Willett, 
who's an emergency medicine physician, talking about how she landed a spot on the board of directors for a global health team. I've had to do a lot of learn as I go and just ask ask for an opportunity and just see how things work out. I approached the board of the organization and I expressed how much I was getting from working with them and how I thought that I could contribute in my own way and really kind of help to develop things with this vision that I had. And it was only the ask and I got the yes. Going for the ask isn't just something that our interviewees did themselves. It's also something that they urged other women to do too. They gave this advice to each other in varying forms. And learn to ask for what you need and what you deserve. Because if you don't ask, you've already told yourself no. But the thing is, learning to ask isn't as straightforward as it might seem. As Kay Pryor, our British anesthesiologist, points out, it's often more challenging for women to make the ask and seize these opportunities. And this is because we don't often feel we are deserving or qualified. Imposter syndrome is very common in high achievers, and it is far more common than in, in women than in men. Say you were to look at a, a job description and the person's specification wants 10 particular things. A man will think, oh, well, I've got six of them. I'm going to go for it. Whereas a woman will think, well, I haven't got all 10. I can't possibly apply. And again, that's the imposter syndrome kicking in, making my wholly competent, highly capable female trainee think, actually, I can't do that. Where she really can. The tricky thing about imposter syndrome is that it doesn't necessarily disappear the moment that we learn about its existence. This is something that actually came up during the creation of this podcast episode. One afternoon, while we were talking through edits, Shreya, who is known for her advocacy work with women in medicine, shared her struggles with imposter syndrome. In my story, I have found it's not as simple as just go for the ask. We talk about it all the time in these women in medicine chats and advocating for yourself, um, even on the Curbsiders Women in Medicine episodes. But I have found it takes a lot to unravel for me to even just get to the ask. See, I, I was brought up in a way of censoring myself to be less threatening to others, to not get hit with the likability penalty. I'm very good at not getting hit with those. But when it comes to even getting to an ask, I find myself being conflicted if I'm being too difficult or if I'm inconveniencing someone. And I have to do a lot of internal questioning of what my values are to get to a strong conviction to get to the ask. I often have to ask a few people that I trust to coach me and role play with me even before any negotiation or important meeting. And I think that's the value of peer mentorship where that can come in and kind of combat your upbringing and your, maybe your instinctual nature at times. Here, Shreya highlights that the solution isn't as simple as if only women asked more, we could achieve gender equity. The solution isn't as simple as let's fix women. Let's make them more confident. There is so much more to it and many more layers we have to peel back before we get to that point. (music) 
Now that Kali has firmly settled into attending ship, time, and specifically time for herself, has become one of her biggest challenges. I've put everybody, my, you know, my family, my career ahead of my self-care. And I didn't realize it until I got myself into trouble. I got to a point where I, you know, um, was busy and picking up kids and, you know, homework and this and that. And it was time for dinner and I didn't have time to cook. I went and picked up food for everybody except for myself. I fed everybody, and when it, when we sat down, I looked around, and I had no food for myself. And that's when I realized I, I have to start thinking about me in addition to everybody else that I think about. This anecdote is striking. But to me, what's even more striking is that Kali's experience is not unique. Here's Doc Swiner, a family medicine physician, describing how she, too, let her self-care take a back seat. After, you know, becoming an independent entrepreneur, uh, getting married, having two kids, I literally passed out at work because I was doing too much. So many of the women we interviewed were, like Doc Swiner and Kali, able to pinpoint a specific moment where they felt overstretched to a breaking point, where face to face with their limits, they were prompted to take a hard look at how they were structuring their time. The way Kali sees it, this is a phenomenon that is actually tied to the experience of womanhood. I think one of the most important things that we as women do when we want to, you know, have a family and we take most of the responsibility for our family and we want to have a career and we want to take leadership roles in our career is we think we, we can handle it all ourselves. That feeling of having to handle it all ourselves, even if it's far more than we can manage, is exceedingly common among women. But we're not masochists. We're not making a conscious or deliberate choice to spread ourselves too thin. It happens because we naturally assume responsibility for certain things. Things like figuring out what's for dinner, remembering the birthdays of colleagues or family members, becoming the undesignated agenda keeper for meetings, tasks that fall under the category of emotional or unpaid labor. Now, it's so ingrained in us to take on these tasks, so culturally encoded, so reinforced by the societal context in which we live that it can feel instinctual. I once had a mentor, she's a highly respected female surgeon, describe this phenomenon perfectly to me. She told me once that she noticed that when she's in the middle of a busy day and her mind wanders for just a second, it almost invariably goes to one place, her kids. Curious, she asked her husband, who's also a successful surgeon, what he thinks about when his mind wanders. His response was, he thinks about his research. He thinks about the cadaver study he's working on. So we don't know where Kali's mind wanders in the middle of a busy workday, but she seemingly found a way to get around emotional labor. To juggle her responsibilities as a mother with her responsibilities as a physician, she's found a solution. She compartmentalizes. I put all my shifts together so that when I'm in work, work mode, I'm in work mode. And so all the CMEs that I have to do, you know, you know, to keep up with everything, all my readings, all my, you know, question ranks that I have to do, um, anything work, work related. And the block time that I have off is when I'm a mother, you know, I try and, you know, take care of my household, do projects with my kids. Kali's clearly got a good sense of what work and non-work structure fits her needs. As an aside, I'm using that term non-work deliberately. Because it isn't just mothers or wives who struggle with this. It's all kinds of women, even those who have other priorities. In Kali's case, a segmented approach was the way to go. For other women physicians, a satisfactory work-non-work -work dynamic may look decidedly different. 
Here's Dr. Marguerite Duane talking about her journey in finding what works for her. I made the radical decision to quit my job and to stay home and be a stay-at-home mom. I loved being a stay-at-home mom, but I also knew I missed patient care. I loved taking care of people and really forming that doctor-patient relationship. And so I explored ways in which I could combine both. How could I be a mom to my four young children and be a physician? And I found that through direct primary care, which is a house calls only based practice. So I provide care to my patients from cradle to grave and and I do it in a time and a manner that's really convenient for them and convenient for me. At different times in my life, I can either expand my practice or limit my practice to make sure I'm getting that appropriate level of balance. Instead of creating a segmented schedule like Collie's, one that delineates strict hospital time and strict home time, Marguerite actually searches for a way to blur those lines to bring her personal and work schedules into closer proximity. The overall point here is that there's no right or wrong way to approach this question of what work-life integration looks like. What it looks like is going to be different for every single woman, because we're not all juggling the same things, either personally or professionally. And in fact, we may not always feel like we've locked into that elusive, perfect balance. Personally, I know that I rarely feel that way. But talking to women like Kali and Marguerite is a reminder that it's important to keep checking in with ourselves, to remain in tune with our priorities, and to strive to live a life congruent with our values. Otherwise, we may end up sitting at our own dinner tables with empty plates in front of us. As Kali tells her story, she's very quick to acknowledge that she wasn't alone. She was able to navigate these women-specific challenges because of the support of those around her. One of the things I learned is to create your network to help you do all the things that you want to do. I, you know, I had the support of my family, and that was the most amazing thing that could have happened. For Kali, the support comes in the form of family and relatives. And this was true for a lot of the women that we spoke to who cited brothers, aunts, family, friends who help sustain them through these challenging moments in their careers. But it's key to acknowledge that these familial and spousal networks are actually a form of privilege, and not everyone is lucky enough to have this natural built-in avenue of support. And that's why it's so critical that we create networks of solidarity in addition to the ones that we already have. This is something that electrophysiologist Dr. Susie Figofsky points out. I think other women truly understand your struggles and conflicts and the complexities of being a wife, a mother, and a physician. And I think it's very important to have your tribe of support. We crave connectedness. We need to feel as though we're not alone in our struggles. But again, theme of this podcast, it's so much easier said than done. Devoting time to connectedness can be particularly hard to do when you work in healthcare. As medical professionals, we train in this larger system that incentivizes the next career milestone, the next abstract submission, the next discharge. With such a never-ending checklist of professional to-dos, it's no wonder we feel difficulty investing in our relationships with others. It's relegated to the very bottom of our priority list. Today, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the challenges that women face. And along with that, we've thought a lot about the structural and societal changes that'll be necessary before we can arrive at true gender equity. And I'll admit at times, this feels discouraging. But I was heartened by the way that one of our interviewees, who goes by the name Clinical Pearl, framed this issue. Because we talk so much about how the medical system is broken, and it is. 
It really is. But the people in it are not. The people in it are kind and compassionate and committed to making the next generation better. And that restores my faith in humanity. So thank you for being one of those kind and compassionate people. Thank you for listening. I also want to take a moment to thank my own support network of women who provided tons of insightful feedback on this episode. Working on this podcast has been a very timely reminder of just how important you all are. And a very special shout out to Shreya Trivedi, who served as a model of female mentorship throughout this whole experience. I hope this is just the beginning of our conversation. Should you be interested in continuing the discussion, I invite you to join me on Twitter or Instagram. My personal handle is at Gab but I would love to also hear from you from the official Quarium podcast channels. We'd love to hear the ways that this podcast resonated or jived with your story. I want to hear about the times that you came up against stereotype threat. I want to hear about what support looks like for you. And I really want to hear about anything that you felt wasn't mentioned in this episode. Thanks, Gabby. We'll continue the conversation actually on the Women in Medicine Twitter chat this Sunday, August 25th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So log on to Twitter and go to the handle at Women in Med for more instructions. And also feel free to reach out and ask for help. If you don't know how Twitter chats work, I was once that person. And we also invite our male allies to join in on the discussion too, because regardless of gender identity, one can still identify with some of the things that have come up in this episode. But we hope these stories can make us all a little bit more introspective and open-minded on how these concepts can affect each of us a little differently. So thank you for joining us. Share this episode with your colleagues. And I hope and look forward to hearing from you on Twitter this Sunday. Take care.